But for those of you who are unfamiliar, maybe you haven't spent any time in church, or maybe you're just not super familiar with the book of Acts, it's a fascinating sort of piece of the New Testament canon, because Acts functions essentially as part two of a two-volume history of the Christian church. Uh, The first volume and the second volume are both written by a man named Luke, who was a physician in the ancient world. Uh, And Luke writes both of these documents for a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know really anything about Theophilus other than the fact that he was the recipient of the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, Some people have proposed that Theophilus was a believer who was eager to grow in the faith. Maybe he was new to Christianity and Luke is writing as sort of an act of discipleship. Uh, Other people have said that maybe Theophilus is skeptical. Maybe he's not actually a Christian, but he's interested in Christianity. And so Luke is writing with an apologetic persuasion to ground the truths of the gospel in history. But whatever the intention behind Luke's writing, we know that he wrote. He felt that it was necessary for someone interested in the Christian faith to know the history of the Christian faith. And so he begins with the first of his two volumes in which he recounts the biography of the life of Jesus. I think that's a fitting place to begin. He starts with Christ's virgin birth, and he moves all the way through to Christ's bodily resurrection and appearances to the disciples. And then he gets to volume two, which is the book of Acts. And as he's beginning volume two, he readdresses Theophilus. And he says to him, in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That, that phrase began is really important, actually. Because it sort of cues us in as to what Luke thinks he's doing and what Luke sees the book of Acts doing and how he sees it functioning uh, as a document. You see, Luke doesn't see the book of Luke as a story about Jesus and and the book of Acts as a story about the church. He sees all of it as a story about Jesus. Uh, Luke, the gospel, is what Jesus began to do. Acts, the church history document, is what Jesus continues to do now by his spirit in the life of his apostles and his people. Uh, The book of Acts is oriented around two major events. Uh, One of them happens in the opening chapters. And that's the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. Before Jesus ascends into into heaven, he says to the disciples, when the Holy Spirit arrives, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Bobby just referenced this portion of Acts a little bit earlier in our service. And so the disciples wait, and the disciples pray, and the Holy Spirit descends on them. And something interesting happens that's resulted in an awful lot of debate and discussion in the life of the church. When the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, they begin to speak in languages that they have not learned. They begin to speak in tongues of other people groups from around the world. Many of them are present, and they hear the disciples proclaiming the gospel in their own language. Now, people go back and forth about whether speaking in tongues is a gift that's for today or whether or not that's something that ceased with the death of the last apostle. That's a fruitful and worthwhile conversation that we can have. But here's what's important, I think most important, about what happens in Pentecost. Jesus has just told the disciples that they're going to be sent to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Here's the problem. In Genesis chapter 11, chapter 12, God divided humanity into nations by confusing their languages at the Tower of Babel. Humanity is fractured and fragmented along lines of speech. And so what's actually happening at Pentecost is that God is reversing the curse of Babel so that humanity can be brought back together around the true tower of Babel, which is Christ. 
And so Acts is tracing out the fulfillment of this promise of Jesus. You'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, which would have been the city of Rome in the ancient world. That's as far as they knew. But there's a second event in the book of Acts that sort of orients the book. This is the conversion of a man named Saul. It happens on the road to Damascus. He, he spends much of his early life rigorously studying the Jewish scriptures. He spends a little bit of his later life rigorously persecuting Christians. And yet he has this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, and he becomes the very thing that he so hated and realizes that he was probably mistaken. But Jesus says something about Paul that sort of traced out through the book of Acts. He says, he is my chosen instrument to declare my name before kings and rulers. And so you see both of these promises of Jesus working themselves out through the book of Acts. The gospel is going closer and closer to the ends of the known world, and Paul is carrying the gospel before the Gentiles and finally before kings. And it's this second promise of Jesus that we spend our time in this morning. Paul's been arrested in Jerusalem. He's appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen to have a trial in front of Caesar. But before he's shipped off to Rome, the man in charge of his trial, Festus, uh, wants to have somebody sit down who has a, a better understanding of Judaism and help him understand why nobody likes Paul. See, there's this interesting thing is that every time Paul is put on trial, most of the people prosecuting him are like, we have no idea why everybody's so mad at this guy, especially the Romans. Like, I don't get it. I don't know what's wrong. He seems fine to me. That should sound familiar to you because that's exactly what happens to Jesus. It's a similar situation here. Festus says, I can't really find anything wrong with him. But then he speaks to a king in the ancient world, a man named Agrippa, who was widely known for being an expert in Jewish laws and customs. And he says, maybe you can sit down with him and you can help me understand why I'm even prosecuting this man. So we're told in chapter 25 in particular that after this conversation, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, who we know from history as his sister, came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with military tribunes, the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, before we jump into our text in chapter 26, this is really important because it's easy for us to gloss over just these names as people, minor characters in the story, but what's happening in the encounter between Paul and King Agrippa is actually something of profound significance over the course of the New Testament. Because Paul's original, or rather Luke's original readers would have known that Agrippa is his personal name, but his family name is Herod. This is King Herod Agrippa. The Herods have a, sort of a, a checkered history of interacting with the family of Jesus and the people of Jesus. It's Agrippa's great-grandfather that tried to murder Jesus through having all of the firstborn in Bethlehem killed. It's his father who murdered John the Baptist and had him beheaded. And here now, the apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul, stands before the great family that tried to destroy the Lord that he now serves. This is a weighty encounter. This is a family that for generations now has tried to root out and destroy the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here Paul stands in front of them. And so we come to our text. Chapter 26, verse 1, we're told, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hands and he made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, 
that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And I now stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul begins his defense by saying to King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that you're the one that I'm talking to. I'm glad that you're the one that I have to defend myself before. And in particular, he singles out the fact that Agrippa knows the Jewish scriptures. He's widely regarded in the ancient world as an expert on Judaism, on the customs of Jewish people, on on the Jewish scriptures and prophetic hope. He knows the Old Testament well. Now, Paul's defended himself before an awful lot of people throughout the book of Acts. And what's interesting is that in all of Paul's defenses, he, he sort of tends to tell the same story, but it's only in this one that he really unpacks the fullness of the gospel. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that every time Paul really gets going, someone gets mad and cuts him off, and then they send him back to prison. And so there's sort of a practical element of just as he's about to get to the punchline, everybody's like, all right, you're done. Back to prison for you. Agrippa lets him talk a little bit longer. But, but there's another element as to why I think this particular defense has more of the gospel in it. And I think it's because of what Paul said. You know the Jewish scriptures. You know the Old Testament. You know what I'm talking about. I can have a conversation with you because you're conversant on the issues that matter. There's something about having a a dialogue with someone who's cued into the subject that you're talking about that just makes all the difference in the world. Um, one One of my best friends, uh, did his undergraduate degree in physics at the University of South Florida with a minor in astronomy. So he's kind of a genius. Uh, he's getting ready to work on his master's degree, and he's just absolutely brilliant. And a great guy, I love hanging out with him, but every so often, he sort of starts talking about his particular subject of study. So he gets into things like quantum mechanics and, and orbital dynamics and, and all sorts of stuff, and I just sort of listen and nod my head. I'm sure everything you said is true. I don't know what you said. Maybe I'm agreeing to something really awful. I have no idea. I don't know what any of these words mean. I can't do math. Like, I know there's three persons in the Trinity, and two plus two generally equals four, and that's about all I've got. So I don't have anything to say here. I I don't know the topics being discussed. I, I don't even know the words that he's using half the time. But if we start having a conversation about music, he and I can talk for hours and I can talk back in that conversation. Right, because I, I love music. I've spent most of my life uh, sort of surrounded by music. And we can talk about our favorite 90s punk band and whether the 7-inch is better than the LP or whether this sort of label change caused them to change their sound in a negative or positive direction. And we can talk about whether sort of the acoustic dynamics of the studio that they recorded in contributed to the atmosphere of the record. And, and you're listening to this right now going, what on earth is he talking about, right? <laughs> like, like. Because maybe we're not conversant on that subject, but when two people know the subject they're talking about inside and out, then a conversation can happen. Paul says, I think it's fortunate that I'm making my defense before you because you know what I'm talking about. You know the Old Testament. Now I wonder, 
if Paul's words would have described most Christians today, you know the Old Testament. I don't think they would. I think actually one of the greatest tragedies in modern evangelicalism is the juvenilization of the Old Testament. We have turned three-fourths of our Bible into nothing more than a biblical version of Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables. We view it as nothing more than a collection of helpful stories that tell you how to be a better person and how to not make bad decisions. It's nothing but moralism, and it's an abomination to the scriptures. Right? Don't be like Adam and break the rules. Something bad will happen to you. Do be like David and slay your giants. You can go get that job that you're looking for. Don't be like Samson and let your hair get too long because when you cut it, you'll lose your power. See, the, the, whole, the whole thing doesn't work when you really think about it. But this sort of moralistic view of the Old Testament is not the way the apostles read the Bible. They don't see the Old Testament as a collection of stories that tell you how to live a better life. They see it as a unified witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul can say to Agrippa, I I consider myself fortunate to make my defense before you because if you've read the Old Testament, you know that you're Goliath and I'm David and I'm about to slay my giant. No, he says, I consider myself fortunate, and he'll go on to say, because you know the prophets, you know what they said, you know what I'm saying about Jesus is true. Balaf, the Old Testament is theopneustos in the words of Paul to Timothy. It is God-breathed. Can I plead with you? Recover this blessed portion of Scripture for the life of the church, for the good of God's people. He says, I, I consider it... Uh, an act of fortune that I get to make my defense before you. And then he goes on to describe his youth. He describes growing up as a Pharisee, the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. And he gets to the story that by now should be familiar to us in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Many of us, if we've grown up in the church, we've heard about Paul's sort of checkered past. We've heard about the life that he lived before his encounter on the road to Emmaus, or Damascus. There's another road in the Bible. We'll talk about that later. We've heard about his sort of angry, uh, violent persecution of Christians, and and he recounts it here, that that I, uh, in public and in private, was trying to kill Christians. In public, I was trying to get them to say the sort of things that would indict them so that we could send them off to prison or put them to death. In private, I was plotting, I was scheming against the church. And we hear all of this and we sort of go, yeah, Paul killed Christians because he didn't like what they had to say. That's not really what's going on here. And here's, here's the thing. If we don't really understand why Paul is so violently angry about the Christian movement, then we're not going to understand the weight of what Jesus says to him on the road to Damascus. So let me give you a little bit of background. Um, I grew up late 90s, early 2000s, where in sort of evangelical culture, there was this obsession with the end times. And and it was largely prompted by a series of books called Left Behind. Now, I'm not saying whether those are good or bad or right or wrong, but but this was just sort of the climate, that everybody had this sort of sense that, that the end is near. Now, that was terrible for a nervous elementary school age Travis. 
because I too read the Left Behind books. And I noticed that the people who got left behind didn't think they were going to get left behind. And I said to myself, I don't think I'm going to get left behind, but neither did the people in the books. And so I had like a rapture survival plan in middle school because I was convinced that I was going to get left behind like the people in the books. There was like numerous instances where I would wake up on a Saturday morning and my parents would be working in the backyard and I would walk to their room and see that they weren't there and I would walk to the living room and see that they weren't there and I was like, this is it. They've been raptured. I'm done. And I would move to phase one of the plan. But there was this general sort of pervasive mood. God's about to do something. Now, that may or may not be true. I mean, in the grand scope of history, it's been 10, 15 years. That's not that much time. Jesus could come back in the next 10,000 years, uh, or, or Christ could return before I finish this sermon. I don't know. The point is, there's a pervasive sense. Something's about to happen. It's exactly the same in Paul's day in the Jewish religion. The, the Jewish people have been reading things like the book of Daniel. They've been reading the prophet Isaiah. They've been, they've been reading Ezekiel. They've been crunching the numbers. They've been looking at the genealogies. And there was a general sense right around 0 AD to 3550 AD, there was a sense God is about to do something. He's about to move in some unique way. He's about to usher in his kingdom. He's about to send the Messiah. He's about to deliver us from the heavy hand of Roman oppression. Finally, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. Finally, we'll return to the glory of Israel under the reign of people like King David and the early reign of Solomon. But then they also remembered this. The first time God delivered his people, as he was leading them to the promised land, they fell into idolatry. They started worshiping the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so rather than being led into the promised land, God led them into the wilderness for 40 years in judgment. And so they were saying to themselves, God's about to do something. But if we do what our ancestors did and start worshiping idols, we could ruin it. This is why Paul is so angry at Christians. This is why he's so violent in his persecution of the church. He's saying, God's about to do something, and here you are talking about this crucified Messiah who's somehow God incarnate. You're going to destroy us. You're going to lead us back into the wilderness for 40 years. We're going to be punished rather than liberated. You're going to thwart this exodus that God's about to accomplish. What are you doing? That's why he's so angry. God's about to do something, and you're standing in the way. This is what makes the words of Jesus so significant. Paul continues to tell his story. Verse 12, in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. If somebody were to dig up a letter that one of us wrote in sort of our modern era, uh, let's say 200 years from now, there would be all sorts of idioms and phrases that we use that would make absolutely no sense to them. Like suppose that you're writing to your friend and you said it's been raining cats and dogs. Imagine somebody like 300 years ago or 300 years from now hearing that and trying to figure out what was going on in Tampa, Florida in 2018. Okay, they would just be at a total loss. And it's the same with this phrase that Jesus uses. Here Paul recounts his vision. He explains a little bit more of what Jesus said to him. And one of the things Jesus says is it's, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Most of us have no idea what this is. It's, it's actually an ancient, pretty common phrase 
sort of a, a reference, an idiom like it's raining cats and dogs. So what a goad is essentially is sort of a long, sharp stick. And when farmers would be sort of driving their cattle to, to till up fields and, and to plant uh, the, the next round of crops, when the cattle would turn in the wrong direction, they would take one of these sharp sticks and they would poke the cattle with it in the opposite direction that the cattle was going so that they would turn the other way. It was this way of imposing the farmer's will on the farm animal. It was a way of steering and directing your ox or your cow or, or your donkey or whatever you were using to plow your field. Every once in a while, the animal would get really frustrated and would kick back against the goad. And the farmer would just prod them all the more. Until finally, they realized you can't win. In the fight between the goad and the cattle, the goad always wins. In the battle between the will of the farmer and the will of the farm animal, the farmer always wins. This is the picture that Jesus is, is sort of laying before Paul. Aren't you tired of bucking back against what God's actually doing in the world? Aren't you tired of kicking back against the will of God? Paul has spent his whole life, and especially these last two or three years, screaming at Christians, what are you doing? God is about to do something, and you're getting in the way of it. And in this one instance, with this encounter with Jesus, here's what he realizes. God has already done something, and I've set myself up in opposition to it. I'm the problem, not them. I wonder how many of us hear Jesus' words. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, and it applies to us. You feel the Spirit's conviction in a particular area of sin in your life. You know that you should repent. You know that you should seek accountability. You know that you should go to the people in your life group, that you should go to the people in, in this particular community, that you should talk to a pastor or somebody who can help you, and you just keep kicking back. I'm going to do what I want. Next week, next week, next week. And you kick, and you kick, and you kick. Or, or, or maybe there's a relationship that's fractured, that's broken, whether because of sin in your life or sin in the other person's life, and you know that you need to mend it. You know that you need to make it right. But you're too proud, and you just keep kicking. Or maybe, maybe it's something as simple as what was talked about before I got on the stage. Maybe you have heard year in and year out, however long you've been at this church, about the importance of serving. And you kick, and you kick, and you kick. Can, can I tell you something? Um, when it comes down to the battle between the will of God and the will of man, Jesus always wins. And it may take a long time, but there will come a point, make no mistake, where like Paul, Jesus stretches out his hand and he says, enough. You're done kicking back. We've got work to do. And this is what happens. In verse 15, Paul asks, who are you, Lord, as he recounts his story? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet. For I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
I mentioned that the early chapter of Acts, there's sort of a discussion around uh, the, the gift of speaking in tongues and how that operates in the church. Uh, there's a similar, I think, important and fruitful discussion about the place of miracles in the life of a believer. Uh, people look at, at the Gospels and they see all of these miraculous things that Jesus is doing and there's the question, of, should we expect this to be the norm in the Christian life? Is this a, a specific thing that's happening around the incarnation? And I think that's a fruitful, helpful conversation. But one of the things that I think everybody on all sides can agree on is that Jesus doesn't do things haphazardly. Like, no act of Christ is thoughtless. And so when Jesus is performing miracles in the Gospels, ultimately there's two purposes, I think. One of them is to confirm the authority of what he's saying. And two, it is to teach the essence of the Gospel. And I think it's no different here when Paul is blinded on the road to Damascus. Like, let's ask this question. Why is it that Paul goes blind after he sees the risen Christ? Because John sees the risen Christ in the beginning of the book of Revelation, and he doesn't go blind. Like, all of the disciples see the risen Christ uh, before the ascension, and none of them go blind. Why is it that Paul goes blind? Here's why. Paul has spent his whole life blind, and now his external reality reflects his internal reality. Why is it that Paul can see when Ananias lays hands on him at the house on Straight Street? Why is it that the scales fall from his eyes and finally at long last he can see? Here's why. Because after having seen the risen Christ for the first time in his life, he can truly see. Jesus' words are not accidental here. Look at everything that he says. He says, I've appointed you to witness the things which you have seen. I'm sending you to the Gentiles and to your people to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light again and again and again. The language of Jesus when he talks to Paul, when he commissions him, is the language of sight. It's the language of seeing. Why is that? Because now both physically and spiritually, Paul knows what it's like to be blind. He knows what it's like to see. He knows what it's like to walk in darkness. He knows what it's like to have his eyes open to the light. And as he's recounting this story, A little bit later on in verse 24, we're told as he's saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I'm just going to be honest. I I love Festus' interjection here. Um, It's sad because every time Paul gets on a roll, someone cuts him off. And so it happens again here in his third defense. But I love it because he's essentially saying to Paul, you've been reading too many scrolls, you're out of touch with reality. And I feel like people say that to me all the time. You read too many books, you're just out of touch with the world. And I say, they said it to Paul, I feel okay. <laughs> but if you think about Festus's objection, you're out of touch with the world. You're out of touch with the way things are. It's equal parts entirely right and utterly wrong. Um, The last thing that Paul says before Festus cuts him off is that as he's talking to Agrippa, he says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing more than what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. It's the resurrection of Christ that's the final straw for Festus. And Paul's language is important, that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, which means there's more resurrection coming. 
When you think about what he just said in light of the world that we live in, it sounds desperately out of touch. Like, for a moment, set aside the way that entertainment and social media and, and advertisement has given us the ability to plaster over, reality, plaster over reality. Consider for a moment the true facts, the brute facts of the world. Everyone you know, everyone you love, everything you have ever cared about will die and burn to the ground, and in 500 years, no one will remember it. That is the world that we live in. And all you have to do is look. And Paul says to Festus, who's living in a world without all these distractions, who's likely seen decades of death, he says this, life does not end in death, but death has been overcome. The world does not end in ash, it ends in resurrection. And he says, you're crazy. Look at the world around us. That's obviously not true. Or look at, look at the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Turn on the news. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Read the paper. There is a sense in which the, the brute facts of the world seem to radically conflict with the reality of the gospel. That's how Festus is right. But here's how I think Festus is wrong. So my grandma, in the last year or so, uh, sort of reached the point where she can't uh, be on her own anymore. And so we began the process of uh, moving her from the home that she'd spent a number of years in to uh, a place where she could receive some additional care. And so we're going through her stuff, and there's a, a lot of stuff. Like, whenever you move, you realize how many things you accumulate over the course of however long you've lived, wherever you've lived. But there was a lot of stuff that my grandma had that was broken, uh, sort of trinkets and gadgets that didn't work anymore. There was a lot of clothes that my grandma kept that had holes in them and that were sort of past the point of really being usable. And at first we were like, why on earth is all of this stuff here? Why didn't she just throw it away? But then we started thinking a little bit more about sort of the era in which my grandma grew up. She grew up during World War II, where scarcity was the norm, where you didn't know when something broke if you would have enough money to buy another one. Or if there would even be another one, even if you had the money. So you kept it. You didn't throw it away. You waited until you found someone who could fix it. You didn't know if you were going to have enough money to buy uh, new clothes when your old ones wore out. And so you kept it. And you waited until you met somebody who could, who could help you patch it. So my grandma, in light of the world that we live in, one where we have abundance, she's, she's living out of touch with reality. She's living out of touch with the way things are. But she's not out of touch with the way things were. The way that she's living now makes perfect sense in light of how things were. Here's my point. Christianity, in light of the world that we are presently in, seems and is, I think, desperately out of touch with the way things are. But if Christ has been crucified, if he is risen, and if he is returning, then Christianity is in lockstep with the way that things will be. And in that regard, Festus is totally wrong. So, hear me. The way that we live as Christians is in light of the way that the world will be when Jesus returns and makes all things new. The, the, the tradition that I grew up in, the Anglican church, there was a, a phrase that was said, uh, repeated by the congregation at the end of every sort of service, sort of the formal sending out of people. Uh, the pastor would say, uh, now we proclaim the mystery of faith, and the congregation would say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. 
And the logic behind putting that at the end of the service is because we're being sent out into the world to live in light of these facts and in light of what has happened and the incarnation, the death and the resurrection of the Son of God in light of what will happen, that Jesus will return to make all things new. We live in step with the way that the world will be when Christ restores it. Because he's died, he's risen, and he will come again. Festus says to Paul, you're out of touch with reality. You're out of touch with the way things are. And that's true. But he's not out of touch with how things will be. And so here's my appeal to you, Bay Life. As you go out into the world this week, would you live in such a way that recognizes that God is not finished? That creation doesn't end in fire, it ends in a feast in the new heavens and the new earth? And would you live in light of that reality? I'm gonna pray and we're gonna continue in worship for just a moment. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we love you, God. I thank you uh, that you have chosen to speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that the Spirit's inspired these things for our instruction. Uh, Lord, I pray that where uh, we've grown callous, where we've kicked against uh, your will, Lord, I pray that you give us repentance. Lord, where we have uh, failed to live in light of what Christ has done and will do, God, would you convict us and by the Spirit give us strength to walk in newness of life. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Baylife, as you stand, uh, one of the things that I would say that I, I love about Paul um, is this, that every time Paul does a whole lot of theology, like the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he erupts into song. You can read Romans 1 through 11, and then all of a sudden, he's just writing a worship song. And I think that's important for us to learn from that, that whenever we wrestle with the things of God, if it doesn't lead us to worship, then we're wasting our time. And so what I want to invite you to do now is to worship in response to the things that God has said. Would you stand with us, and would you continue singing?
Sabay life as we go. Amen. As we go, to the praise of his glorious grace, oh, Father, use our ransom lives in any way he chooses, and that we will respond the way he deems so.